Greetings and salutations. Good to have you back, our loyal listeners, or if you're disloyal, we're still glad to have you. Welcome to Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung, and glad to have you with us. And our special guest is John Fesco, who I'll uh, give a chance to introduce himself in just a moment. So glad to have him here and talk some theology and talk about some of his books. But I want to just say thanks again at the outset to Crossway for sponsoring Life and Books and Everything. Crossway does so many great things. There's lots of great publishers out there, and we're I'm thankful that Crossway sponsors this program. What they do at the beginning of kind of a podcast season is they give me a list of books that they suggest I mention as they come out. So I just looked at this 10 seconds ago, and it's a little awkward, but today I'm supposed to mention... The Biggest Story Bible Storybook by Kevin DeYoung and illustrated by Don Clark. So there you go. Uh, if you haven't seen that yet, you can check out the Biggest Story Bible Storybook, Storybook Bible, something or other. Uh, 104 stories, 52 from the Old Testament and from the New Testament, wonderful illustrations from Don Clark. And maybe you can look at it for Easter, give it to somebody. But Crossway did an amazing job on that book. All right, we have John Fesco. John, thank you for being here on the program. And I've read your books for many years. And now, <laughs> as of the last couple of years, I can say that we're colleagues at Reformed yeah. Theological Seminary, which I'm grateful for. Though you're in Jackson, I'm in Charlotte. So why don't you start by giving us a little bit about yourself, your family, your academic career, why you moved from California to Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have, um, when I was younger, I, uh, was in high school and, uh, some, I my church had youth Sunday and, uh, this is when I was in the Baptist church and on youth Sunday, uh, there was a slot to sign up to do the sermon. And I told my parents, I said, I don't know why I just feel like I, I need to do that. And so my pastor was kind enough to help me, uh, you know, uh, do my first sermon. And so uh, I, I, I did that. I preached that. Or maybe in our circles, they would say I exhorted, uh, you yeah. know, for, uh, you know, when I was 16. And very soon thereafter, people kept on saying to me, yeah, you, you, you think you ought to think about going into the ministry. And I thought, no, I don't want anything to do with that. Long story short, fast forward, you know, the Lord kind of had his hand on me and pulled me into the ministry and went to seminary. and. Um, Ended up in the uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and I, for the first roughly ten years or so, I was a pastor, church planner, and pastor, and that went really mm. well. And I, I was relatively, you know, I was content, and I thought that's where I would be. And even had built-ins put into my house for my books. <laughs> and yeah. uh, with <laughs> within months, it's kind of like, nope, time to go. Uh, yeah. And uh, you know, got called out to serve as a uh, academic dean uh, and uh, professor of systematic theology at at Westminster Seminary, California. And during that time uh, as a pastor, I had been an adjunct at RTS Atlanta. And uh, so I had served as an adjunct for about 18 years at RTS Atlanta. And then RTS contacted me and said, hey, we'd love to have you come out to, to Jackson. Are you interested? And we prayed about it. And long story short, made the move from Southern California to, to Jackson, Mississippi. And we we really love it. It's It's been a fantastic transition. The, the church here is great. The institution is great. Uh, some of the really love my colleagues here, not only here at Jackson, but obviously in the broader 
uh, RTS uh, institution. And we've got, uh, I've been married to my wife for almost 20 years. Uh, we've got three children, though they make the noise of six. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, so, sometimes I, sometimes I tell my children, uh, we'll be in the car and I'll, I'll say, I'm pulling over if you guys don't quiet down and in either I'm walking home or you guys are one of the two, yeah, right. but, but we need some, we need to, we need to quiet down. Uh, but uh, yeah, things have been going really well, and uh, the Lord has been very kind to us. And so, uh, yeah, we just uh, we love it, and I love uh, teaching and and preaching. So uh, yeah, it's just been a great transition here to RTS. Well, that's great. So uh, you just go back a little bit your biography. So you had, uh, did you have a PhD when you were pastoring already? <laughs> Yeah, I uh, pushed all the way through. I was uh, I was single when I was in seminary, which meant that I could spend a lot of time in the library, and I did. And mm-hmm. I felt like the meter was running, and I thought I I better get this done as smartly as I can. And so I finished seminary, went straight on to my PhD, and I remember it was a very busy time. But I um, uh, I was studying for licensure exams. No, sorry, ordination exams. I took my ordination exam in October, defended my dissertation in November, and then uh, was ordained in December of 1998. And so I was still single though. So, you know, okay. you can go home and you can do crazy things. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can get a lot done that way. It's like, you know, Paul says you can devote yourself entirely right. to the Lord. <laughs> and so, yeah, I did all of that. And so I was a church planner with my PhD and that's why shortly thereafter, RTS Atlanta called and said, "Hey, would you be interested in teaching?" And I said, "Would I? That would be that would be fantastic." Yeah. And so, so where are you from? Of, uh, where'd you grow up? And did you grow up in the OPC? No, you know, I was baptized in the PCUS before the split uh, back in 1970, okay. and my parents just kind of at that point went wherever there was strong preaching, and so that took us to a number of different churches over the time and. And it was uh, it was it was when I was in seminary at a Southwestern Baptist in Fort Worth, Texas, that uh, I started listening to R.C. Sproul tapes. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I was listening to Sproul. I don't know anywhere between two to four hours a night. I was a janitor at night in the library at seminary, so I had my duster or vacuum, and I would yeah. run my my ear earphones. And and people thought that I maybe was listening to music in my Walkman, but it was. RC Sproul tapes most of the time. Every once in a while, Walkman. That's yeah, a good that's reference. right. Yeah, and every once in a while, yes, it was Van Halen. But uh, you know, uh, okay. it was uh, listening to Sproul, and um, you know, before I knew it, I thought I think I'm more Reformed than I am Baptist, and so ended up going into the OPC uh, shortly after graduation, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, yeah. a sister denomination to the PCA. Yeah. This is a, we'll get to your books just a minute. This is a little bit of a niche question, but I'm I know you get this with seminary students over your career and I get this too and maybe some who are listening, but there's often the question, especially you know, really academically charged guys and they love the theology and they're really good students. So what made you how did you make the decision, okay, I'm doing full-time pastoral ministry and I'm sure you'd say you're still doing pastoral ministry? But to to flip that and be mm-hmm. pursue something more of an academic seminary career, how did you come to that decision? Because I oh. see guys make that switch, and I also see some guys doing seminary who, after a while, say, "Man, I just this is good, but I really got to preach every week," and they move over full time to the church. How did you think about that change? 
Yeah, it was uh, something at first that when I was in seminary, I just was, I thought I'm going to, I want to teach. And so I, I pursued that. That's why I, you know, I knew I needed to get a PhD, but it's funny in that as I was studying for my, my PhD, I, I kept on reading, whether it was Luther, Calvin, Turretin, you know, you name it. Uh, most of the time, these guys were full-time pastors and professors. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, Lord, if, if, if you want me to be a pastor, I'll be, I'll, I'll go wherever you, you send me. Uh, and I was kind of basically at that point, totally wide open. And so when I was just about getting ready, when I was in the process of finishing up my PhD, my home church asked me, Hey, we're going to be planning a church uh, across town. Would you be interested in pastoring that? And I took that as, you know, Providence pushing me in the direction of the pastorate. And so I said, okay, yeah. And so I didn't apply anywhere else. I didn't look mm. anywhere else. I just, you know, I prayed about that and, and pursued that. And so I thought at that point going forward, all right, Lord, if, if this is where you're going to have me, which is in, you know, full-time church planning and then presumably pastoring then okay, great. Uh, no worries. And I'm, I'm not concerned. And I was, I was content. And uh, then it was about two years in that RTS Atlanta contacted me and said, would you be interested in teaching? And I thought, oh, hey, I'd, I'd love to do that. And so I, I thought, okay, uh, this is great. This is the best of both worlds. I get to, I taught usually a course once a term and it ended up being at one point at the height, it was uh, 12 hours a year. So it was like, oh, wow. you know, a course in the spring, a course in the summer, a course in the fall and a course in January. Uh, yeah. And so I was, I was very happy doing that. And again, I, I told myself, all right, Lord, this is great. I'm happy to do this. And I thought that was going to be what I was going to do for the, the rest of my time until I was six feet under. And, um, you know, in all seriousness, that's why I told my wife, well, I guess this is the house that will retire in up. Let's, I, I want to put some built-ins here so that I could kind of <laughs> maximize my bookshelf space. And the carpenter said, where do you want bookshelves? I said, on every single flat surface in this room. <laughs> yeah, know? that's right. You know, so I thought long haul and, uh, I was blissfully content and, uh, and then, uh, a series of institutions and churches had contacted me and were saying, Hey, would you be interested? And I kept on turning them down saying, no, I'm, I'm happy where I am. And then finally, uh, one of my colleagues uh, out at West Westminster, West, Westminster Seminary, California contacted me. And at first I thought, no, I I'm content. And when you add to that, uh, earthquakes, fires, drought, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, no, thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm happy here in, in, in Atlanta. And then I, I, I came back to it and I literally called my colleague to tell him no. And by the time I got off the phone with him, uh, you know, I, cause I asked, I said, well, why do you think I should be pursuing this? And he talked and we talked and got off the phone and I told my wife, I said, I think maybe we need to consider going out West and we need to pray about it and uh, going into full-time teaching. And, um, and uh, my wife said, it's funny that you should say that because I was very dismissive of it at, at first, but now I'm really, I've, at last couple of weeks, I've been wondering if we need to do this because when you add to it at the time, you know, as anybody who goes out West knows, it's really expensive. And I thought, yeah. man, I don't know. More expensive if, than Mississippi? <laughs> imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. yeah. And uh, I told my wife, I said, you know, but if that's where the Lord is calling us, then we need to go, even if that means we're going to live in an apartment. Uh, you know, let's not worry about the details. Uh, if that's where the Lord wants us, then that's where, where we're going to go serve. Because I'd initially told the Lord, you know, in prayer, 
if you want me serving in a small church out in the middle of nowhere, that's fine too. You know, I, yeah, I'll just go right. wherever you want me to go. And so I said, we said, okay. And so we prayed about it and it was, it was a bit scary at the time because, um, uh, two other institutions had contacted me and I more or less turned them down. Uh, a lot of people might've said, let's play our cards and let's throw out right. resumes in all three places. But I thought, no, I really sense a call to this institution at this time. So let's just put our, put our, uh, put my application in there. And, uh, I thought if this doesn't work out, I might not be teaching anywhere. And I thought, but okay, uh, that's fine. And so we did it. And, uh, Long story short, got got the job, and so we said, okay, the, the Lord's calling me to go out mm. there. And again, in California, I was content. I, I, you know, I didn't wasn't looking for anything, and that's where RTS uh, Jackson called, and it was one of those things. I said, okay, let's pray about this again, and and maybe this is where the Lord would have us go. And because we love Mississippi, it's a fantastic place, but it was nowhere on our radar. <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, if you had put this on my life plan, I, it would have nowhere appeared as far as I was, uh, you know. Yeah, Mississippi, no, nowhere on the plan. And uh, we visited and again prayed about it, and and so okay, and so yeah. But like as you noted, as you as you noted, um, you know, since I've been here almost, I've been preaching morning and evening at a church for the last uh, two and a half years because the oh really, uh, yeah, local pastor has been. Um, uh, he was diagnosed and then was treated for and is recovering from brain a brain cancer, a, a brain tumor. And uh, so blessedly, my time now is starting to wind down as as he's ramping up. Uh, so, yeah, it's kind of like I, I got this bug where I feel like I, I want to be in the pulpit as much as possible uh, and be in, you know, with a foot in the church, because right. the, the, those are the folks that we're training here to serve in the church. And if you get too far removed from the church, you might actually forget who, why, and the, the ultimate reasons as to why right. you're, you're doing this. So that's kind of a quick nutshell. So it's long story short, I always tell guys, pursue it as a call, uh, you know, pray about it and ask for the Lord's leading so that, you know, maybe it's teaching, maybe it's preaching, but um, most of the time it needs, it's going to probably be preaching because seminary positions are at a, you know, they're very yeah. few. Very few and far right. between. So, right, um, yeah, yeah. That, no, that's really good. It makes a lot of sense. And <clears throat> it's not that we're throwing out fleeces and expecting writing in the sky. I wrote a, a whole book about not doing that, and yet we mm -hmm. do. We do see that. Uh, sometimes I tell guys, you know, you do have to don't don't make yourself make decisions that you don't have to make mm -hmm. yet. I mean, you got an opportunity to serve this church? Is it a good opportunity? Can you serve there faithfully? Yeah. Don't imagine scenarios that you don't have to decide yeah. because the Lord opens that door and gives you not every open door you have to walk through, but you, yeah. you usually can't walk through them if they're yeah. all bolted shut. So you just no, have to think true. about it as they come to you. Yeah. So, so let's many talk people, about, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I was just very quickly say so many people, I had guys that say, no, I want to serve in a church of this particular size in this particular region of the country right. and nowhere else. And I always say, what about Jesus saying, follow me? <laughs> where are we yeah. going? No, nope, just follow me. So I always say, try to have an open mind as to where the Lord would have you serve. And you never know where that might take you. Yeah, that's great. So I want to talk about uh, you, you 
are writing a lot of really high level stuff. And in particular, I want to talk about your work on covenant theology. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, I want to get to this new book. You did an introduction. Introduction is a bit euphemistic. It's it's half the book uh, to uh, Voss's natural theology. So let's just talk about Covenant Theology, and tell us about this project, because it's a really significant project, uh, mm-hmm. projected three volumes. You've done two of them. What inspired you to do this? And is this just really micro-targeted for uber-reformed people? Mm-hmm. Why are you spending a good deal of your time and academic energy to write mm-hmm. what will be well over 1,000, 1,500 pages on Covenant Theology? Yeah, you know, um, there's a statement uh, that made a huge impression on me many years ago when I was reading by uh, J. Gresham Machen, and I think it's in his book, What is Faith, if memory serves me correctly, but he said, if anybody wants to make a long-lasting contribution to the church's understanding of a doctrine, they really have to ground themselves in the history of the doctrine. Mm. Uh, And so that really impressed upon me the need to say that any time that I want to write something or teach something or even for that matter, preach something, I need to do my best to to tap in and listen to the ongoing conversation in the church because we're not the first ones to come to any of these topics. And so um, as I was looking at covenant theology, obviously, you know, Presbyterians, uh, Reformed folks that we are, that's that's a big part of our, uh, our, our doctrine. And so I was looking at these things and um, I thought, well, I want to write on this because I want to have a better understanding for myself. But at the same time, let me do some historical legwork on this to make sure that I'm not going to be repeating any bad ideas. Uh, but at the same time, I need to sit at the feet of some of these great minds of the church that we have so that I can learn from them uh, and hopefully hone and sharpen my own you know, formulations and expressions. And as I looked at some of this stuff, particularly, say, on the covenant of redemption, um, I kept on noticing, wow, uh, there are hardly any monographs, any single volumes Mm -hmm. on this this one subject. Um, And, uh, you know, in the history of doctrine, there may be like, you know, three or four over the last couple of centuries, you know, three, four hundred years. And then I noticed the same thing about the covenant of works very little on a, in terms of monographs on the covenant of works. And then when I looked at the history of these doctrines, I thought, huh, there's also not a whole lot there too. I can't say this about all of my work, but I've tried to be uh, to work in the gaps. In other words, where there are lack or tr- where there's an absence of something, okay, let me see if I can contribute to that and, 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 and help people that come behind me. I jokingly tell my wife, I may be one of the few, and it may be crummy work, but people will have to work through it anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was the only one. That's yeah. Right. You know, but it's uh, easier to get the first place medal when there's one yes. person running the race. That's right. There you go. You know, yeah. so it's like, okay, uh-huh. great. I'll, I'll take it. Um, but, um, and so as the, on the covenant of redemption, I, um, I wrote it, and the originally the manuscript was about 600 pages, and I was looking, I thought, oh, good grief. Um, this is going to be tough to find a publisher, because publishers aren't keen necessarily on saying, you know, really huge books. Uh, yeah. 
or at least for me, they're not. <laughs> uh, and so I thought, okay, let me do the unsolomonic thing and chop this thing in half. And uh, I will, you know, separate them. So I did one on the history of the covenant of redemption and the one on the doctrine. And then the same kind of thing unfolded with the covenant of works, you know, more or less two books. So one on history, one on doctrine. Um, and so that way, I, 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 I tell my students, it's been a real education for me just to study the history of these things and to learn about them. And so I hope that that, that background informs the doctrinal mm-hmm. side of, of the project. And so God willing, there's, you know, as you noted, one more installment that I'll hopefully do in the covenant of grace, whether that'll end up being one or two books time, we'll have to see, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's uh, it's been in, in one sense thrilling. I, I really enjoy it a lot, and I and I hope it's uh-huh. useful to people in the church that they can kind of pick up these books and and learn from the history. And and uh, if they don't agree with all of my conclusions, that's fine, no big deal, you know. But so long as it it kind of orients them to the discussion, so that they know, oh, okay, here are the big issues, here are the the questions, and and here's at least one solution. Maybe that maybe what I've done is useful. Maybe not. Maybe people can build off of it or head off in different directions, but it's an effort to kind of recapture, hopefully the the, the covenants, you know, for, for, for the church. Well, it it really is. And and I know you're being modest and that's a good thing to be, but these are really impressive works. And so I'm holding up the mentor, you know, published Adam and the Covenant of Works. This is 491 pages, including all the the notes and the bibliography and the index mm-hmm. at the back. And then Covenant of Redemption is similar size before that. And then Covenant of Grace is still forthcoming. So I, I do want to ask some specific questions about sure. these covenants, because some people listening may, this may be old hat, or they may know nothing about some of these terms. But before I do that, just briefly say a little bit, how, how do you go about writing you know, a trilogy of books that are each four or 500 pages. Do you just have, do you still use hard books or you digitize things? Do you have 15 <laughs> books laid out and you mm-hmm. take all your notes and then you put it into a chapter? Tell us about the actual research and writing, how you went about it, how long it takes to do mm-hmm. a really serious academic monograph like each mm-hmm. of these books are. Yeah, you know, what I do is I do my best to try to start with the history of the doctrine. I'm not saying that I always start at the very beginning, uh, but I'll start reading uh, sometimes secondary sources. Like I'll start with a secondary source, see like Andrew Woolsey's book on the covenant, Mm -hmm. you know, covenant theology. I might start there. That'll give me some avenues of investigation. And then I, I, I start identifying primary sources and I'll start reading them. Uh, uh, depending upon the age of the book, <clears throat> if it's um, an older book, uh, I might be using uh, PDFs. If you go to prdl.org, which is the Post-Reformation right. Digital Library, they have, I don't know, 40, 50, 60,000 titles. And, you know, a lot of them are in English. A lot of them are not Latin, French, German, whatever. But um, I'll identify those and I'll pull the sections that I need and start uh, reading, uh, marking them up. Uh, make taking notes. And then I have, um, I don't know if I've got one here. Um, I've got uh, notebooks and one of them is here. And you can see where Mm. I put the title of the book, page number, and a brief description as to what's going on in the source. And then, you know, I take and kind of make an individual index for myself. 
And so I'll, you know, note it that way. And then based upon what I see, um, I'll kind of make categories as to, okay, I think I need a chapter on this. I'll need a chapter on this and I'll need a chapter on this. So like, for example, in the, the mentor book, I kept on bumping across different names for the covenant of works. Uh, mm-hmm. and eventually it struck me enough to say, well, maybe I'll do a small chapter here on the different names for the covenant of works, just so that people can see the terminological, uh, variety. Um, you know, and then, you know, I think, you know, we may talk about this, uh, in a little bit, but I had no plans on talking about the relationship between the covenant of works and the mosaic covenant, because right. I thought, eh, I feel like I've treated that enough. And, you know, i I don't know. I don't have much interest in it anymore. It's fine. But I kept on running across that so many times as authors were mm. talking about it. Um, I finally got to the point where like, I think I need to do a chapter on this and at least try to survey the different views uh, and put it out there and say something about it. Because I think that if I don't say something about it, it may look as if I was not being responsible with what I find. So then once I set up the, 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 these various historical chapters, like say, how do people treat Leviticus 18.5? Right. Then it's typically those chapters that then set up kind of later on in the later half of the book, the doctrinal questions that I'm going to try to interface with and, 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 and listen to and, and then, and then address. Um, And so as far as the time, you know, one of the chapters in that book on Adam and Grace and the Covenant of Works, I wrote that six, seven years ago. And, you know, I just, you know, kind of, it, it's like I read a bunch of books, the iron was hot, I struck, I wrote it down so that I wouldn't forget anything, and then just tucked it away. Uh, but then it was over the course of, say, um, it's probably over the course of about three or four years, you know, working on it periodically, mm-hmm. you know, you know, a couple of chapter, chapter here, chapter there. And then towards the end, uh, say in the last 12 months before the book, I turned it in, then it's like a fast downhill kind of race where once all of the history is done and I kind of know where things are, I sit down and maybe I'll write a chapter to two a month. And so it just starts coming out much, yeah. much faster. I, I tell my students, and they don't realize this, it's like research is probably 70% of the work, writing right. Writing is maybe 10%. Editing is another 20%. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, so you do 20, twice as much editing as you do writing, and then four or five times as much, if that's the right math. I'm terrible at math, you know, doing the research. It's, right. it's the research and organizing the research. And I'll do, I don't think I have an, a notebook here. Um, yeah, I don't have one here, but um, what I'll do is the, in the middle process, is I make a detailed outline for each chapter, and then I go through with my notebook, and I'll say, okay, I'm going to plug in this book and this page number here, this book page number here, and so that I have a roadmap so that when it's time to write, I just have my notebook, and then I'll start writing. Okay, this book, page 376, grab that book, page 376. Every once in a while, um, I'll do it in my head, and I'll have a dozen or more books spread out all over my office. (laughs) You know, I try to avoid that because that is actually a slower process than if I have the roadmap with the outline. Um, But um, it's like, if you have a, if I have a good outline, a good battle plan, 
then the writing process, that 10% can go very quickly. Um, and, uh, and then I, and I go for there Yeah. and then it's, uh, off to friends and colleagues for feedback and then off to the publisher usually. So yeah, maybe three to four years for one of these big books. And I love what you said about uh, revising. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's often been said there there are no good writers, just rewriters. And, you know, I, I've heard C.S. Lewis, a couple other people maybe could just write and it would be pretty well. But yeah. most everyone mm-hmm. else, and this is something I'm sure you and I are always telling students, look, you need to revise this. Yeah. And so, of course, everyone has to learn that when you're trying to get it in before midnight of the deadline. Yeah. You, you don't have time to re read through it again. But I, I was reading, um, you know, I finished last year. I just loved Andrew Roberts' big biography mm-hmm. of Winston Churchill. Yeah, like that's a great book. Yeah, amazing writer and researcher. Now, of course, he's written all sorts of stuff about the 19th and 20th century and written books on Churchill before. So he wasn't coming to it mm-hmm. uh, a, a novice. But he mm-hmm. said, amazingly, once he did his research, it took him 100 days mm-hmm. to write the book. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred days to write a 900 page book. Yeah. And he, he yeah. you know, he'd just get up at four and he'd write and he'd have breakfast and he'd write. Yeah. Now that's pretty extraordinary, but mm-hmm. it, but it is true what you said, John, that when you get the roadmap in your head, you know mm-hmm. what this chapter is going to be, this section is going to be, this part's going to be, you have the sources, you have a good organization. Mm-hmm. Then it's actually, well, it's all fun. It, it can't all be fun, but mm-hmm. then it's, seeing the fruit of all of that work. And yeah. I think it's really important for anyone, whether you're a student or in ministry, or you just like to, you want to study, you want to make a contribution. Yeah. Uh, if you just sit down and say, okay, I have something really interesting to say about stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, there may be a few people who are just, you know, Ross Douthit or something. He's mm-hmm. always just think, but he's, he's also always reading stuff. Yeah. And to really have something meaningful, you have to have a lot of research the proverbial, you know, ice under the the water, and then you just get the tip of the iceberg when you get to write it. So yeah, that, no, that sure. resonates a lot. Let, let me talk about, let's, let's go to the covenant of redemption. So here's mm-hmm. a simple definition, the pactum salutis, that's just Latin for the same thing, mm-hmm. pact of salvation, covenant of redemption, the eternal, uh, this is just mine, or I stole it from somebody, I can't remember, uh, refers to the eternal agreement between the Father and the Son. Mm-hmm. Now, there's some debate to what degree is it the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but let's mm-hmm. just say the Father and the Son to save a people chosen in Christ before the ages began. So the covenants we see worked out in Scripture explicitly, mm-hmm. we see uh, even references in the ancient Near East, but there's a covenant, a compact between Father, Son, Holy Spirit's involved also. Mm -hmm. There's some disagreement on how that works. But a covenant whereby Christ is going to be the surety. The Father gives certain obligations for him to meet. And upon meeting those obligations, he receives the covenant blessings. And then those blessings can accrue to those who belong to Christ. That's the covenant of redemption. And you can feel free to tweak that definition. But my question for you is, Mm -hmm. and you deal with this uh, at length in the book, but is this actually a biblical doctrine? I think uh, I, I read this was in Tyndale Bulletin, which is a fine evangelical journal, mm-hmm. 2018. Uh, scholar was writing about the covenant of redemption, and he says, the pactum, quote, lacks clear biblical support. It is little more than scholastic tinkering. 
mm-hmm. which is a common objection from Bart, from others, even from some very fine Reformed theologians. Mm-hmm. So give us not the 500 page, but give us the brief precy on why is, okay, it makes in some sense, but isn't this just Reformed theologians with too much time on their hands? Is this really a biblical doctrine? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's such a common objection. And so one of the things I discovered in the history of the doctrine is that Theodore Beza, you know, Reformed theologian, late 16th century Calvin successor at Geneva, He's editing his critical edition of the Greek New Testament, and he's looking at Luke 29 or 22, 29, where in the in the Latin it says, And I appoint to you a kingdom as my father appointed to me a kingdom. But he said, and he notes this in the margin, but the word here, diatithe me, is not a point, but rather it says covenant. Uh, I covenant to you a kingdom that my father mm-hmm. as my father covenanted to me a kingdom. And so well, more or less, he, he because he's reading the original languages, he's not looking at Latin, he's looking at the Greek, he sees something clearer than what the translation rendered it, and it poses the question, okay, we understand that Christ covenants a kingdom to us, fair enough, but uh, at what point in the ministry of Christ does the Father covenant a kingdom to him? And then you begin searching the Gospels, and there is no recorded event that you see the Father covenanting a kingdom to him. And mm-hmm. so you you begin fanning out into the rest of the Scriptures, and say, for example, in Hebrews chapter 7, where the author of Hebrews says that uh, by a sworn oath, you know, God appoints Jesus to be the surety of a better covenant. And uh, this is all embedded with Psalm 110.1, or at least it rests mm-hmm. upon a foundation of that where, you know, he says, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so you think, okay, again, when did that event occur? It certainly doesn't occur or it's not recorded in the gospel accounts. And so you say, okay, when? And it's to such a degree that the psalmist, if I can state it this way, is allowed to eavesdrop on a conversation mm-hmm in eternity between father and son where he's appointed as this covenant surety. Now, to add a third layer, you know, it's like I tell my students this, and you probably tell them yours similar kind of things, is that lexicons are useful. Uh, But the most important lexicon that we can use is the Old Testament interpreting the new and the new interpreting the old. In other words, how does the Bible itself use all of these terms that we, we throw about and one of the most, I think, important terms in this discussion uh, and the way it's defined comes to us in Psalm 105, verses 8 and following, where the psalmist says he remembers his covenant forever. Okay, so he's talking about covenant. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, there's, there's a synonymous parallelism that a covenant is the word that he commands. Verse hmm. 9, the covenant that he made with Ad- Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, So again, another synonymous parallelism where it equates a covenant with a sworn promise, a covenant with the word that he commands. Verse 10, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, so that his statutes are equivalent with his covenant. His commands are equivalent with his covenant. His sworn oath or promise is equivalent to a covenant. So all of that is to say is that Hebrews 7 and Psalm 110 records this covenant between the father and the son. And so mm. I would say that that's some of the rock solid, um, you know, um, exegetical founding for understanding this. And then when, again, when you study the history of the doctrine, you see that 
there are other passages that that you know theologians bring to bear. So like Psalm 40, when the the son is saying, I'll do these things you have commanded me, you know, here's my obedience. You have not desired sacrifice, but obedience. Or when he cries out in Psalm 22, my God, my God, you know, somebody like Herman Vitzius says, well, only somebody who is in covenant with God can mm. cry out, my God. And so that the psalmist cries this out is understandable, but then Christ himself uh, cries this out as he's suffering upon uh, the cross. And then, of course, Zechariah chapter 6, uh, verses 13 and following. Now, that is a complex passage, uh, but that's not the only passage when you see this covenant between Yahweh and the branch. Right, um, it's a key so, passage. Yeah, I mean, that, that I think it's, it's not, as some have said, just scholastic tinkering. When you look closely at that passage, th- that what Zechariah sees is a vision of Psalm 110. Uh, you know, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So you, you put all of this together, and, it, and, and in the aggregate, it, I think it gives us this very clear picture of this covenant between Father and Son. And as I argue, and that's another part of the discussion, and Holy Spirit, but we can you know, right. set that part of the discussion off for another time. Yeah. And, you know, just to uh, give credit where credit is due, I, in, I'm teaching covenant theology for the first time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I did, you know, you just get one lecture on covenant of redemption and read a number of things, but read your book through very carefully and was very helped by it. Great. And uh, yeah, so thank you. And all of those passages, and of course, maybe the most the most obvious passages, though they don't mention the word covenant, is mm-hmm. all of the language in John's gospel. How, right. how what, what's the word, you know, we, we need to describe John 5, the Father has given the Son works mm-hmm. to accomplish, or John 6, mm-hmm. the Father has given the Son a people, Mm-hmm. Or Jesus is the sent one 31 times in John. He has a right. charge given from the Father. Yeah. The, uh, all, you know, John 10, the consecration, not at his baptism, but in eternity is, I think, some, uh, a good point that you bring out. And then, of course, the high priestly prayer in John mm-hmm. 17. All of this back and forth between the work on earth, mm-hmm. having this analog between the communion with the Father and the Son before the world began. And what I think we're right to see, in fact, yeah. I think we're compelled to see yeah. that one is the outworking of the other. And the way that that the father and son go back and forth mm-hmm. show us that this earthly expression of the work of salvation is the, the overflow, the execution would be a better word, of the agreement that the father and son. And so when we say, well, what what is the best biblical word mm-hmm. in using these other passages where it's used more explicitly, Barith right. in the Old Testament? Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a covenant. It's a yeah. compact between the Father and the Son. And at the end of the, oh, really, the, the theological section of the book, you go through, you know, what does this mean for Trinity, election, imputation, the Ordo Salutis, a lot of good theological payoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have time to get to, into all of it, but just here's another key objection. So what would be your response? And uh, thankfully, a lot of the, you know, almost all of the reformed dogmaticians, you know, anticipated this objection. But one of the, the key objections is, okay, if there's a covenant, 
doesn't a covenant, a compact between persons presume that there's a differentiation of will? How can the son covenant with the father <clears throat> or the spirit? Doesn't that mean that we're now dealing with three wills and that the Trinity is somehow divided because the will is a, is, you know, historically have seen that there's just one will. So mm -hmm. what's your answer to this perennially difficult theological problem that doesn't a covenant blow mm -hmm. apart inseparable operations and the, the unified one will of the Trinity? Yeah. As you said, it, it is a common objection. On the other hand, you know, what one, at least as a historical observation, the fact that John Owen in the 17th century plied the covenant of redemption in his polemics <clears throat> against the Socinians uh, who mm. were against the doctrine of the Trinity, that should at least clue us off to say maybe the objection isn't as weighty as some might think, especially right. if Owen is leading off with that. And so that's one observation. But uh, more specifically, you know, the way we the way that Owen even goes forward and, and Voss picks this up later on in his dogmatics uh, and in his writings is that, yes, there's one shared will among uh, the triune God, and that's, of course, because of their shared essence. But on the other hand, we say that uh, this you don't push unity at the expense of what our earlier medievals would call relational opposition, so that all of a sudden you lose the Son, or you lose the Spirit, or you lose the Father. And so I, 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 you know, when I talk about this, I say, we don't say that the Father was crucified, we don't say right. that the spirit was crucified. We say that the son was crucified, but somehow that observation doesn't splinter the, the unified will of, of the triune God. So in that sense, at least classically speaking, we can speak of inseparable operations, but we can also speak of divine appropriations. In other words, there are aspects of the singular work of the triune God as it falls upon each individual member of the Trinity where they have their unique uh, function in the economy to carry that out, and so that way, that's that way. The son, the father, can send the son, uh, and the son can be sent. And then, conversely, the father and the son can send the spirit, and the spirit can be sent. And how do we understand that when we say that the scriptures characterize that as a covenantal sending, and, and a you know, and a covenantal going out? Uh, and so, you know, singular will, but manifold in a threefold execution, according to each person of the triune yeah. God. So, yeah, we want to maintain the unity, but not at the expense of the persons. That's right. And the, the phrase you use, relations of opposition, mm -hmm. is an important phrase. And, of course, it doesn't mean antagonism. That's not what right. we mean by opposition. We just mean distinction, that there right. are distinctions to be made. Uh, but among the three persons. And I like what you said, John, because yes, it's an important theological question, but to some degree, it it's not it's not unique. You right. could you could not have any sort of covenant of redemption, and you mm -hmm. have the same sort of problems yeah. problems anytime you make any sort of distinction, whether it's well, the father wasn't on the cross, the son was, the son mm -hmm. was sent, the spirit proceeds. Anytime you're going to say something about one person. Mm -hmm that you're not saying about the other, that the, the Father is unbegotten, the Son is eternally begotten, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son, all of that are those relations of, of opposition. So you're going right. to have the same kind of 
conundrum, which is why the, the church and its theological tradition has labored so meticulously to find the mm-hmm. right sort of language. And just to, to put a summary on to what you said, this is from a brockle. The father and the son have the same aim and objective, but the whereas the father wills to redeem by the agency of the son as surety, the son wills to redeem by his own agency as surety. Hmm. There's just one expression of one will, and yet the the appropriations of it. One is willing the son to be the surety, and one is willing that he himself would be the surety. Right. So there are there are good theological explanations that don't blow apart the the oneness of the trinity yeah so let's uh our, our time is is going to quickly run out and i told you when i i contacted you i wanted to talk about your books the covenant of works and we haven't talked about that <laughs> yet but this came out last year and again it was very helpful in preparing my own lectures and reading this and several other things but you've done really yeoman's work and going through the history of it so give us a a a short user-friendly definition. What are we talking about when we refer to the covenant of works? Yeah, we could say that it's the original agreement that God makes with Adam uh, to bring about the consummation of the creation, which he's supposed to secure by his obedience to God's commands. Uh, and it's a blessing that is supposed to uh, overflow to his, to his offspring. You know, that's kind of a very quick thumbnail sketch of, of what the covenant of works is. And so, um, yeah, it, yeah, that's that's the basic definition I would right. say. So again, some some objections would be, and this comes from a number of good reform voices in one way or another. Covenant of works, mm, just even the language of works, they are <laughs> kind of allergic to that. Isn't everything about God's relationship to man based on grace? How can <laughs> there be this initial covenant relationship that we? We define in some sense as works or meritorious, everything, even that God would Mm -hmm. speak to us. Isn't it all gracious? So what do we mean and don't we mean when we label it a covenant of works? I think proponents of the doctrine historically have always noted, and this is an important, important feature, is uh, what we would say is the, um, you know, the fact that God is God and we are creatures and the way that the Westminster confession characterizes this in chapter seven is God's mm-hmm. voluntary condescension. Now yep. some condescension. So yeah. underline that that's a Absolutely. good word. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, some people want to characterize that as grace. I, I, you know, that's not my preferred term. I understand what they're saying. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm much, much happier with voluntary condescension, but it highlights the fact that we and God are not equals in this arrangement that God does not have to do things this way. He is, he is being benevolent uh, when he you know, presents, this, uh, presents this to Adam. Uh, but then the other observation I would make is this, is that we have to remember that whenever we're talking about the covenant of works, yes, it's about anthropology. Uh, it's also about eschatology. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, there was an end goal to the creation before sin ever entered the world. But what all of this connects to is it connects to the man in the God-man uh, so that we're laying the found, f- foundational uh, layers, if you will, uh, for Christ's comp- uh, work that he's supposed to come and complete. This is why he's called the last Adam in 1 Corinthians right. fifteen forty-five. So when if, if, it, if we say works makes us uncomfortable, well, we can say, one, Adam didn't, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't do it. But ultimately, we should we want to make connection to the last Adam's works, 
because he comes and fulfills that broken covenant of works. Uh, and so I think if we keep that that overall story of redemption in view, that you know creation and redemption, hopefully that ties up the package together so that we can see ultimately that it's we're saying the, talking about the man and the God man when we're talking about these things. That's right. So let me piggyback on that again. Uh, a number of people. Reformed and not reformed, but including mm-hmm. some very good reform voices, object to either the language of it, mm-hmm. or they prefer to call it, uh, you know, an Adamic administration, but not mm-hmm. a covenant. Or they say this is sort of putting upon the text dogmatic categories mm-hmm. when it's not explicitly there. Yeah. So l- let me just sketch out three biblical rationales, and you can add to them or dig deeper on any of these. But one justification for calling it a covenant of works is simply the biblical data in the opening chapters of Genesis, that mm-hmm. we have the the usual components of mm-hmm. covenants. Right. We have promises, we have penalties, we have an obligation, we have a federal representative mm-hmm do this and you'll live, do this and you'll die. So it looks and smells and quacks like a covenant duck. And so yes. it, it seems to be. So you have that, you have uh, the classic proof text, and maybe you want to talk about some of the debate with Hosea 6, like mm-hmm. Adam, they transgress the covenant. Because mm-hmm. you open up your ESV Bible, that seems to be pretty s- slam dunk. Oh, Adam also had a covenant. And yet many mm-hmm. people say, eh, not so fast. And then the the third big argument, which you were just hitting on, is really 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 5. If in order for Christ to be the second Adam, if we're gonna if we're gonna make this parallel that Paul does, that he's a representative person who's accomplishing things and lives out his life as a representative for a broader people. For that to work for Christ, doesn't the same thing have to be true? for the type in Adam. So those are compelling arguments to me that I present to my students, which uh, double click on, on one or more of those and maybe start with the Hosea six, seven. Is that a a useful proof text for us? Yeah. I want to say that you could pull that one out of the equation and not appeal to it and still appeal to many other passages of scripture and arrive at the same conclusion that being said, I, I'll take as many as I can get, which means I do think that Hosea 6-7 speaks to that. But what I, what I say is look at the overall picture in that when you look at Genesis uh, 1 and 2, you get a picture of God's son. He's an image bearer. Sons are image bearers. Uh, placed in a paradisical environment, given blessings and curses, and then subsequently uh, ejected and exiled from the presence of God. Then you get at the end of the Pentateuch, the prospects and the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, the prospects of God's son, Israel, Exodus 4.22, Israel is my firstborn son, uh, uh, he, uh, Hosea 11.1, one, out, out of Egypt I called my son. You have Israel, God's son, placed in an Eden-like or a paradisical-like mm-hmm. land, a land flowing with milk and honey, given promises, giving curses. And then the prospects of exile, so that Adam and Israel are the bookends uh, to the um, you know to the Pentateuch. The, this is this is an inclusio that you know anybody that's reading this and then goes back and reads this in Genesis, they're going to be they're going to see their themselves in the story in the sense of oh uh, this is foreshadowing this these later events. Yep. 
And of course, that ultimately sets the stage for Jesus, the faithful son, uh, who is obedient, unlike Israel, unlike Adam. But when the when the prophet looks back upon it, I think that's what he's doing is he's, is, you know, in technical terms, intracanonical exegesis. In other words, he's he's reading back Israel. He's reading back Adam. And that's why he says they, Israel, like Adam, broke the covenant. And this is very, the very language that Paul himself picks up. And I, I point this out in my chapter on Romans 5, where uh, in, in the ESV, it says that uh, Adam sinned, hamartia, and then he transgressed, which is parabaseos, uh, or parabasis is the, is the noun. And you want to say, well, is it just rhetorical flair? Is he just, mm. you know, do, using synonyms? And when you look at parabasis or parabaseo, which we translate as transgression, uh, I forget the exact percentage, but it's something like 95, 96, maybe 97% of the usage of that noun or that verb is in relation to violation of a covenant. Uh, and so I think that if we were dialed into the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and we heard that, that Adam parabasis or parabaseo, he transgressed this covenant, uh, or the, 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 he transgressed and, and was held accountable to it, we would hear transgression of a covenant. That's the exact same language that we see in Hebrews or Hosea 6, 7, uh, parabaseo. Um, and I think that Paul is basically picking that up. So when you have Paul and Hosea and then all of this other information, it's all pointing in that direction. When you add the layer of rabbinic interpreters, patristic interpreters like Jerome translating mm. it that way, medieval interpreters, Roman Catholic interpreters, and then the reform folks finally get to the party uh, in the 16th century, and we come to that conclusion too. It's not something that is quirky to us reform folks. This is something that's testified to in the scriptures, rabbinic literature, patristic and medieval literature. We're just agreeing with this long history of interpretation that says, yeah, God and Adam were in covenant. And so that's where I say, if we look at this holistically from the entirety of the canon, I think we get a much clearer picture. It's yeah. not just about one teeny tiny verse. And do we translate Adam as man or as a proper noun, Adam, that's just looking at things, I think, way too myopically. That's a really important point because on, uh, and it's just, it's not only important for this doctrine, but it's important for how we do doctrine and how we mm -hmm. understand the theology of the Bible. I, I don't consider proof text a, a bad word. Right. I mean, they're, they're used in confessions and catechisms for a reason to help people see, but we're, we're not tied just to a proof text, a word, this is the whole warp and woof of scripture and how a lot of people, th these are, these are, yes, they're distinctively reformed and some of their emphases and expression, but they're also Catholic lowercase c doctrines mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. that the basic ideas have been present throughout the church. And that's, yeah. that's always important to us that we're, we're, yes, uh, you know, you and I are, we teach at Reformed Theological Seminary. We're glad to be Reformed. We believe the Reformed tradition is important, and we're seeking to explain that. But we we, we don't want to be Reformed just to say, yay, team. We want to mm -hmm. ultimately be biblical, right. and we want to be true to the, the history and the Catholicity of the Church. I noticed you mentioned the word Septuagint. Whenever anyone says Septuagint, Greg Lanier and Will Ross, our colleagues, they get... <laughs> 
like a coin in the coffer springs or something for <laughs> right. those brothers whenever uh, we say Septuagint. Uh, one more question about yeah. the Covenant of Works, and then I want to talk just real briefly about the the new Voss book. But mm-hmm. one one area of interpretation we haven't talked about, but maybe you and I come down a little bit differently, but is the question of republication. So mm-hmm. we don't have to you know, go back and forth on that, but it is mm-hmm. important. So tell us, what is that debate about? And in particular, it, it's it, maybe it's died down now, but it was uh, there was a lot of discussion about it in the OPC. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can talk to us about why that came up, what's important about it, what the the final sort of evaluation was in your own denominational context on the doctrine of republication. Yeah, I think that um, you know it's interesting in terms of the overall origin of the debate. This is my own take, is that I think it was something of a controversial subject for a little while, and I I attribute that to the fact that the larger part of the church had become unfamiliar with the particulars of the covenant of works. This Mm. is not to say that you have to agree with a certain position, but just to be surprised, I think, by the conversation, I think was evidence of the fact that, you know, yeah, this was we're unfamiliar with it. And, uh, to, you know, kind of anecdotal evidence of that is there are so few books devoted exclusively to the topic of the covenant of works in the last, say, since the, since the 17th century, since the 16th century, that we're really unfamiliar with the particulars. And as I mentioned earlier well, as in our discussion, when you read about the covenant of works throughout multiple treatments of it, so many theologians will relate the covenant of works to the Mosaic covenant they, they will not often agree on how to do that. Uh, you know, in the chapter that I, I, I write, there's like a dozen or more views that I kind of, you know, mention. Yep. Uh, so it's one of the most diverse conversations within the Reformed context. And uh, so there was a study committee that was set up uh, in my denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, uh, that uh, studied it for a couple of years and produced a report that said, naturally, well, there's some views that are okay, uh, and then there are some views that are, are not okay. And more or less, they, they came to the conclusion that any view that, does, that denies that the Mosaic Covenant is an administration of the Covenant of Grace or a part of the Covenant right. of Grace is probably going to be problematic in some respect. Um, there's, there's a lot of details to that, you know, that's, but that's a very broad brushstroke. Uh, so on the other hand, if you say that so long as you're saying that substantively speaking, the Mosaic covenant is a part of the covenant of grace, because in a post-fall world, all of God's dealings with you know, human beings to save them is through the covenant of grace, then, okay, we may disagree as to how exactly you're going to relate the other elements of the Mosaic covenant to the covenant of grace, but in the, in the main, you're probably going to be on safe territory. Um, and, you know, one of the places that I point to where this issue appears, say, in the Westminster Confession is in chapter 19, where it says that those who are united to Christ uh, do not have the moral law as a covenant of works, thereby to be justified or condemned. Fine, perfect. But I always say, what is the opposite of that? If you are not in Christ, then that means that, and here's the weasel word, in some sense, right? the moral law is a covenant of works to you because you are not in Christ, which means therefore the moral law is there for you, thereby either to be justified or to condemn you. Not to say 
that you could somehow fulfill the moral law, but it's nevertheless, it's the Everest, the impossible Everest that you have to climb on your own if you don't have Christ to climb it for you. And we know that in the end, you will not be able to, to, to summit that peak uh, because, uh, because of uh, you know, original sin and all of the actual right. sin that, that we carry. That, I think, in a nutshell or in a thumbnail sketch is kind of that, that issue as a whole. Yeah, and you know, I think that's that's fair. So the 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 debate, as you said, republication is in what sense, and again, there's that that squishy phrase that we use, but in what sense might the Mosaic Covenant be a republication mm-hmm. of the covenant of works? Mm-hmm. And I like what you said. The you know, crucially, we we have to acknowledge the Mosaic Covenant is a species of the covenant of grace. Mm-hmm. It's it comes, God didn't say here's the 10 commandments, right. obey them. I'll check back in six months. And if you're doing all right, I'll save you from Egypt. No, mm-hmm. he saved them from Egypt mm-hmm. and then gave them the law as a gracious response to mm-hmm. his unilateral salvation. So it's an expression of grace. It has within its system, uh, atoning sacrifices, or at least mm-hmm. types of atoning sacrifices. So mm-hmm. the question is, yeah, to what degree, and it comes back to, we don't have time to go back to Leviticus 18, mm-hmm. but how does Paul use that, mm-hmm. uh, the principle of do this and live? And I think mm-hmm. most reform scholars agree, again, to some degree, mm-hmm. the Mosaic Covenant, more than, say, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, has a works principle mm-hmm. in it. There mm-hmm. is a foregrounding of law in a way that the other covenants don't. So the mm-hmm. question is, can you call that a republication or not? And mm-hmm. then moving forward, how do we understand the moral obligations for all of us? Because I think yeah. you're right. In Again, in a sense, all of us, say this somewhat provocatively, all of us must be found to have fulfilled the covenant of works. Mm-hmm. Just will we have fulfilled it with our surety? Mm-hmm. Or will, because that's the only way to fulfill it is mm-hmm. through Christ mm-hmm. and his work alone, or will we be found to have fallen short of it, which is right. everyone outside of Christ? And, yeah. and to that degree, the covenant of works is is a really key doctrine. And even though it may sound very heavy, mm-hmm. I think rightly understood, and you point this out, it can be a source of great assurance for this reason. It means that all of these legal requirements, these obligations, these stipulations, they have been met, but they've been met by another. They've been met by Christ. Mm-hmm. And so when you doubt your own, you know, have I done enough? How is my faith? You look to the surety. You look to the covenant of redemption. Christ has fulfilled everything the Father gave to him. And, and then we experience it in the covenant of grace because that covenant of works has been finally fulfilled mm-hmm. in Christ. And so I'm really looking forward to another 500 pages. <laughs> when when is the third volume coming out? Oh goodness, uh, I, I'm going to say three to five years, but hopefully closer okay. to the three mark rather than the okay. five year mark. I've got some other writing projects I have to you know uh, attend to uh, and uh, kind of clear the deck, so to speak. Uh, but I'm starting to peck away at it, uh, like um, in something that will warm Ligon Duncan's heart. I'm reading Irenaeus against heresies. And oh, I'm, yes, I'm looking yeah, for uh-huh. covenantal kind of stuff in there. So, uh, so yeah, the, the the work has begun, but it's just uh, slow. That's all. <laughs> okay. Well, I said I would try to keep uh, wouldn't keep you more than an hour. I'm going to borrow on your 
three or four minutes here. No worries. This could be a whole discussion in itself, but it's a significant book. I just read this, uh, mm -hmm. Natural Theology by Gerhardus Voss, and then you have, really, as I said, about half the book is an introduction, somewhat yeah. to Voss, but then also to the significance of this work. Mm -hmm. So tell us about this work. Mm -hmm. Was this like, you know, Indiana Jones, someone yeah. found it buried <laughs> in a scriptorium somewhere yeah, why yeah. have we not had this work before and what's the significance yeah. of Voss of all people yeah. writing I mean you'll explain it's it's his his lecture notes yeah. copied by a student but Voss writing yeah. on natural theology tell yeah. us about this work just came out in a matter of weeks uh, ago from yeah. RHB yeah it was this is I think one been if I can be grammatically imprecise one of the funnest projects I've yeah. ever uh -huh. worked on um in that um, I was talking with a friend and he had talked to somebody and he said, yeah, you know, this guy I was talking to said that somewhere in a school in the Midwest that he had uncovered lectures by Voss on natural theology. And I was like, wait a minute, hang on. Really? Did, did you just say natural theology? Really? Okay. And I, I said, okay, interesting. And so I started doing some nosing around and I, I emailed uh, Richard Muller and was mentioning, he's like, oh, yeah, those are at the archives at Calvin Seminary. And I was like, you don't say. Uh, so I was either so going to- So Muller knew that they were there? Uh, yeah. He said, there's a, there's a oh. box of Voss papers up there. And so I was oh, like, wow. man, oh, good grief. Okay. what you know? So I then had one of my friends and his wife, uh, he's a pastor in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I said, hey, would you do me a favor? I'll buy you dinner the next time I'm up there, which- it's been several years. I, I owe them dinner. Um, I said, but the next time you're in Grand Rapids, would you mind stopping by the, 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 the archives at Calvin and photographing this manuscript? I can give you all the information. I've talked with the librarian. Oh, yeah, sure. No problem. So they photographed it for me and sent me the photographs. And um, I'm thinking about doing a blog post on my blog so I can put up some of these pictures. The manuscript oh, is, yeah, in, is in beautiful handwritten uh, you know, script, but it's in Dutch. I was like, oh, goodness. And so I started talking with another colleague in the Netherlands, uh, Herman Zelderheis. He connected me with a student who transcribed them for me. And then again, I was talking with Richard Muller. Hey, do you know anybody who would be you know, interested in translating this? I, I'm really curious uh, because there's only so much that Google Translate can do for you, right? Because right? <laughs> yes. you can get a peek at, at kind of what's uh -huh. going on. And so uh, long story short, uh, he got me connected with the Dutch Reformed Translation Society. And uh, he pitched it to them as a, as, a, as a project. They said yes. And they said, would you write the introduction? I said, oh, I'd love to do that and do the editing. So uh, Albert Hooches, he did the translation, uh, got me the translation. And so then I started doing the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the critical apparatus for every time Voss mentions an author or a book or whatever, I did yep. the bibliographic work and, and footnoted it. And then for the sake of the integrity of the text, I decided I wouldn't put any of my own historical analysis in the footnotes. I just, more or less, the, the Voss text is the clean Voss text just with the critical apparatus. Yep. But then I thought, okay, in the introduction, I'll write some of my you know, analysis there. And I initially told M uh, Dr. Muller, uh, I, I'm going to try to keep the intro to 25 pages. <laughs> uh, if I had been able to see his response, I think he would have laughed. <laughs> but he said, well, don't limit yourself and just 
just write it and see what happens. Yeah. And so I forget what it was in, in word. It may have been 65, 70 pages in word because what I wanted to do and what I felt like I needed to do is so few folks in the reformed tradition right now know the history of natural theology as it pertains to the natural or to the reformed tradition. Right. Some reformed folks have said natural theology has no place in reformed theology. Um, and, and then there are other opinions. And so I thought, okay, I need to set the context overall. Then I need to talk about Voss. I also need to kind of explain that Voss isn't Superman. Uh, I think yeah. a lot of people present him as Copernicus. Um, right. You know, he's invented all of these, these things. And as I said, no, no, Voss is using other people's material. And that's fine. That's, that's legitimate. That's what we all do. And so I was able to discover connections between him and one of his colleagues, Francis Patton, and some of his lectures on theism, um, and then kind of put Voss within that old Princeton, uh, you know, trajectory of, you know, Machen and uh, Francis Patton, and then, of course, later on, Cornelius Van Til, um, and then kind of paint that picture and then show that more or less, I think, Voss stands in the broader Reformed tradition in the positive use of natural theology within the scope of supernatural or special revelation. So it's not just this bald rationalism, but right. rather it's a scripturally informed, faith-based, if you will, use of natural theology. And, and the significance of this is that, you know, Voss, the biblical theologian, is also Voss, the systematic theologian. Uh, and that these two disciplines, biblical and systematic theology, are not antithetical to one another, but they're the right and the left hand, so to speak. Uh, they they get they they go hand in hand. And you know, one of the images that you can use for this is Voss, the biblical theologian, and Warfield, the systematician, used to go on walks together on the campus mm. of Princeton Seminary. And so I say that's the way that we should do our, our doctrine, biblical and systematic mm. theology, hand in hand. Although I'm not saying that they held hands. <laughs> yeah, they didn't hold hands, but metaphorically. <laughs> yes, that's right. At least yeah, watch, walk closely to each other. <laughs> that's right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, this, this is a really fascinating book, and your introduction really, really is helpful. Hmm. Uh, it's, I had to keep reminding myself of Roman numerals because it's, it's LXX is how long it is, so 70 pages <laughs> But yeah. it really it really helps to show that connection, as you said, with Patton's lectures and the larger discussion in Reformed theology. Mm. So uh, I'll just give the last word to to Voss here because I I just wrote key next to it in my copy here. This mm -hmm. is his question nine. How then do you understand revelation in contrast with nature? He says not in the wide sense of everything that God has revealed to us about himself, since that would include nature itself. And that's an important distinction mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. going all the way back to Junius, there again, there is a sense in which natural theology is itself, it's a theology of revelation. Mm -hmm. Anything we know about God is only because God has revealed it to himself. Right. That's important. This isn't bald rationalism. Right. I set aside. So even natural theology is revelatory, mm -hmm. but he says in that wide sense, but he th goes on, but rather in the narrower sense as God's special intervention, whereby he in a direct way and through special means gives people a knowledge of himself that they cannot obtain. So that's the the, the narrower definition mm -hmm. we often think of uh, reason versus 
revelation. So at the beginning, uh, Voss says, how do you define natural theology as a theology that is a teaching concerning God that takes its content and method from nature? Not in a, you're, you're very clear to point out, not in a Descartes uh, mm -hmm. sort of way. I'm going to empty my head of everything else, and I'm just going to think my way up mm -hmm. to God. That was that. That's never the way that Reformed natural theology, or even I'd say just the whole history of the Church. That's not the mm -hmm. way Aquinas used his mm -hmm. five ways right. or understood natural theology. Right. It is a way to find. Some commonplaces, it has an apologetic aim. Mm -hmm. It's not meant to build the Christian faith from reason upward. Right. But you said at the very end of your introduction that you think uh, there is something, there's definitely something of, of a revival mm -hmm. of this. There's a number of good books. I've even talked about some of them on this podcast. But you say it's probably going to take a generation mm -hmm. to sort of put this back in, in a healthy way mm -hmm. into the bloodstream of reform theology. So thank you for doing your part, not right, only in this sure. book, but other books yeah. to try to do this. Any any last word, anything you wanted to say about the covenant or about Voss or about natural theology or Jackson, Mississippi that I didn't ask you? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Read Voss. He's great. Uh, he's, yes. he's, he's such a, he's such a, an insightful writer and uh, study the covenants. Uh, they're, they're beautiful manifestations of God's love to us. And so I think the more we plunge into the depths, the more that we can begin to at least kind of sound out the depth of the riches of the knowledge and That's the wisdom right. of God. So yeah, press on and, and, and plunge into the word of God. Well, keep doing the, the good work that you're doing, John. Look forward to being in the same place with you sometimes. Some RTS retreat when we're yeah. doing trust, trust Falls or whatever <laughs> we do with those. And Sounds good. Yeah. So thank you and God bless you on your work. And uh, until next time, Sounds for all good. of our listeners, glorify God, enjoy him forever and read a good book. Mm -hmm.